0: your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, this is your holy and errant and infallible word. And so we ask that through it, that you, by the power of your spirit, would reveal your glory to us and that you would make us wise to the salvation which is in Jesus Christ, your son and our Lord. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, as most of you know, uh, I celebrated—I'm going to put that in air quotes—I celebrated my 40th birthday last week, uh, and several people have asked me since that uh, if, now four decades in, if I feel any different. Now, the, the the reality of the situation is, I don't really feel all that different. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't feel all that different, but. Uh, you know I'm I'm upset that and he's not here today but I'm upset that I can't now make fun of Bradley for being old without including myself so that is a little bit different but um, the one thing that I have noticed that has changed at least leading up to my 40th birthday is the nature of my doctor's visits. Um, Previously up until this point Uh, Before my hair started falling out and before my beard got gray, you notice I shaved it off for that very reason. Uh, Before my cholesterol went up, I I would walk into my doctor's visits with Dr. Scott, Dr. Shane Scott, and I would come in and I would tell him how healthy I was. I would say, Dr. Scott, I am healthy. And then because he is my friend and a dear brother in Christ, we would spend the rest of the time just talking about our families or what was going on at the church or just whatever was going on in our lives, okay? It was basically, let's just meet up and let's talk. That was what doctor's visits were. But now, somewhere along the way, things have changed. Somewhere, doubts sort of begin to grow in my, in my heart. And so I go in now and I say, well, you know, I've got this going on and I feel this way and what I need when I walk in is I need Dr. Scott now to tell me that I'm okay. Like I, instead of me saying it, I need him to declare to me, yes, in fact, you are healthy. He confirms, he, he assures me of who I am, at least health-wise, okay? Well, having studied the, the first chapter and a half or so of first John, you may be feeling a lot like I do now when I go to the doctor's office. You may be in need of some assurance. You know, John, he has given us these tests to determine if our faith is true and if it's real. So he gave us what we call the moral test in chapter 1 in verses 6 and 7. Basically, if you keep the law, if you do what God says, then you can know that you are of the faith. He's given us a social test. If you love your brother as yourself, if you love your brother as Christ loves you, then you can know that you're of the faith. But the problem with these tests is that when we measure ourselves up against them, we come away often not not real confident in where we stand, right? Sometimes they, they have a tendency to breed at least a little bit of doubt in us. We wonder, are we spiritually healthy? Are we on the right track? But I would remind you that that at least part of John's objective in writing this little epistle is to give assurance. He wants his readers to know the truth. He wants them to walk away with confidence. And so here in verses 12 through 14, John pulls what I'm going to call Dr. Scott, that despite all of their warnings Despite of all the tests that he has given them, all the statements that make us the least bit uneasy, he now comes back to them here in verses 12 through 14 and he declares to them who they are, who he sees, what what he sees in them, the truth that he sees in them. He gives them blessed assurance and it's assurance that applies to all of those who are resting in in Christ. And so friends, from the start this morning, I want to say to you, if you came in to church today discouraged, if you came in with doubts or with fears, having studied 1 John up until this point, if you just need to hear the truth once again of who you are, then today these verses are for you. Today there is assurance. It's blessed assurance The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that you rest in, he holds you and he declares what is true. And John here, he reminds us of that and he reminds us of who we are, okay? So that's where we're headed. I will confess to you that this sermon was originally supposed to be one really long sermon, but for your sake, I cut it down. So what you have here, actually, point number one is what you're getting today, (laughs) And point number one was supposed to be who we are. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we move through this, because that's, that's what I'm trying to drive us to, who we are. But I'm going to do my best to sort of break it down in sections that are a little bit more palatable, okay? So let's look at it together. Who are we? Who we are as God's people? The first thing that I want you to notice is how emphatic John is on this point. You know, his intentions may have been unclear up until now. It may have seemed as if he was unsure of where his readers stood. But now, he leaves very little doubt. Six times he says, I'm writing to you because, or I write to you because. The change there is, uh, the verb is in a different tense in Greek, in the first three and then in the last three but he's making the same point. I'm writing to you because, and what's he trying to say to them? Not what he thinks is true, not what he hopes may be true one day of these people, but he writes because he recognizes the truth in them. He knows who they are. and He wants them to be sure of it as well. Now look, as we keep the, the larger purpose of First John in our mind, sort of the, the context of what's happening here, this makes sense. You know, if false teachers are on the scene, if they're challenging the, the authenticity of these folks' faith, if they're saying, hey, you've got to actually have this and this and this and this if you really want to be a Christian, then we can recognize why John would want to remind them of who they are. Not only that, while well, he would want to ground them in the truth of who they are. Now again, I had a completely different example prepared for this moment, but this morning, somebody showed me a picture. And it was a picture of a Henson, a Henson that will remain nameless. And this Henson was at an Ole Miss football game. And to make matters worse, he was at an Ole Miss football game with an Ole Miss shirt on his body. Now, it seems to me... That somebody needs to tell that man who he is. (laughs) He bleeds maroon. He has a legacy of maroon. Before he hurts himself or his future, somebody needs to tell him. I'm kind of trying to do that right now, subtly. Um, Now, that's a silly example, but it's not really silly. It's sort of silly. But my point here is if that's true for sports and that sort of thing, how much more true is it for our lives? We need to know who we are. We need to know where we are established, where we stand. Friends, I don't have to tell you this. I think you recognize it. I hope you do, that as Christians, our identity is under attack, and that's particularly true for our children. You know, whether it's TV or whether it's sports, or whether it's professors that they meet, or whether it's music, or whatever, almost all of the things in their lives are trying to make them question who they are, make us question who we are, and what is true, and what is right. Now next time, John's going to establish us, and he's going to show us what we need to avoid. But for now, I just want to remind you that our obligation... As Christian parents, our obligation as officers in the church, our obligation as fellow Christians is to stand and to declare to one another, yes, I know what you think, I know what the world is telling you, but here's who you are. Here's here's what God's Word says you are. We can say to one another, we have an obligation to encourage one another and say to one another, this is who God has made you to be. Now, the question still remains, what is true of believers? Who are we? Well, before we get there, I want you to consider one other thing. Notice that, that John addresses here seemingly uh, three parties, okay? The question, though, is who exactly is John trying to address when he says these things? You know, in 12 and 13c, he addresses children uh, in 13a and 14, it's fathers, and then in 13b and 14b, it's young men. But the difficulty is is figuring out who who composes those groups. There's lots of theories. One is that children is meant to encompass all, everybody, the whole group. So, like in two one, he says, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you," and that encompasses all of his readers, right? And so if that's the case, then you get to fathers, which may be more mature Christians, older Christians, uh, and then children or uh, young men, which is, you know, maybe less mature or maybe newer Christians in, in their walk. That's one option. Uh, another option is that all three of these are categories of spiritual maturity, okay? So children are the newer Christians, less mature Christians. Uh, young men are somewhere in the middle, and then the older fathers are, uh, they are, are more mature Christians. Then the last option uh, is that these categories are just not so much, uh, the emphasis is not so much stage of maturity or stage in life, but John's just trying to declare overall the identity of Christians. This is what's true of all Christians everywhere all the time. Now truthfully, that was a lot, but truthfully I think the answer to which one of these is correct is yes. You know, I, not to cop out on you, but I think all of these are driving us in the right direction. Certainly, John could have had various stages of spiritual maturity in mind. Let me ask you, and this is important, so this is not just a, this is not, this is not me tracing theolo- chasing theological rabbits here. This is, this is important. What do we mean when we say spiritual maturity? My, my question really is, What's what's maturing when we say spiritual maturity? Let me tell you what's not maturing. The truth. What's not maturing is the word. What's not maturing is the gospel. That's the same yesterday, today and forever because the one who gave it is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so when we say more spiritually mature, what has not changed is the truth, is the gospel. It is the same. So, what has changed is our understanding of that truth, right? Maybe our wisdom, maybe our level of trust in that truth. And so my point is that what John says to fathers is actually equally true for children and young men, even if they don't have the maturity to see it. Now, I think that's important because no matter where you may be in your life spiritually, when you read the great truths of the Bible, even if, if you can't grasp it, even if you can't fully see it, those truths are true of you, not because you say they're true. They're true because God has declared them to be true. These are identity markers that are universally true of all Christians. So, what are those markers? Finally, what, who are we? who we are as Christians. Well, notice first, he addresses children. And to those children, he gives them two fundamental truths, two basic truths that address two of our most fundamental needs. They are those who are forgiven, and they are those who are adopted. Forgiven and adopted. Now, look, we don't have time to to fully unpack those those concepts, those are theological truths that would take sermons to to unpack. But just let me say that though these two are addressed to children, there may be none that are more glorious than these two. Ben has already sort of led us that way, and he's absolutely right. John is declaring here, you who were once alienated from God, You who were by birth and by choice his enemies. You who were lost in sin, only deserving his righteous condemnation. Children of wrath. You have now been found forgiven. You have real, complete forgiveness. It's significant again, the verb here in Greek. It is in... The perfect tense, the, the verb for forgiveness, it's in the, the Greek perfect tense, which typically describes uh, a completed action, one that has happened in the past, that's effects are still in effect today and will still be in effect into the future. And so my point is that this is a forgiveness that is sufficient for past sins, it's sufficient for our present sins, and it is sufficient for our future sins, Right? It is a complete and total justification, a complete and total forgiveness. Now, it's been asked what could warrant, what could justify or accomplish that sort of forgiveness? Well, notice it is forgiveness in His name's sake. To put it another way, it's not forgiveness based off of what we've done, it's not forgiveness based off of what we deserve or how powerful we are, how great our name may be. No, it is forgiveness for the sake of the one who is our propitiation in chapter 2 and in verse 2, the one who took our sin and died in our place and who has been exalted to God's right hand. It is Jesus who has the name that is above every name that warrants and accomplishes this sort of forgiveness As there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's because he has done it. I remember uh, a professor saying to me, or maybe saying, not me specifically, but to the class, that one of the great privileges of being a preacher is to get to stand up Sunday after Sunday and to say to your people, you are forgiven to declare it, to be able to say it to people that if they are in Christ, if they're resting in Jesus, then they are forgiven. Well, Presbyterian says, I'm not your preacher, but allow me to say to you, for whatever I am, your sins this morning, if you are in Jesus, they are forgiven. You have been washed white as snow. God the judge, he remembers your sins no more. Friends, I know we're Presbyterian, but that's a reason to dance. That's a reason to sing. That's a reason to rejoice. It's a good thing we got gospel night tonight because we're going to get to do a little bit of that, right? It's a reason to stand up and to celebrate what God has done. But guess what? It gets better because not only are you forgiven, but you are also adopted. You are adopted into the name of the triune God so that Christ is your elder brother. So that God is now your father. You know, I've said it before that we spend way too little time considering the implications of adoption. If we recognize that we are what John says we are here, which is children of the most high God, it would change everything. It would change our lives. It would change the way we approach the world. Let me read to you what what John Packer, J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. In chapter three and in verse one, John's going to say that he has given us the right to be called the children of God, and so we are. Friends, we have all the rights all the obligations, all the access that being children of God entails. Again, let me say to you, if you are in Christ today, God is your father. It's a reason to rejoice. So little children, they're forgiven, they're adopted. Next, notice he addresses fathers. And in both 13 and 14, he says the same thing about them. He says, you know him who is from the beginning? Now the question again is: Who is him? Is it is it the Father who is from the beginning? Obviously, Genesis one one. Is it the Son who is from the beginning? Colossians chapter one and verse fifteen. Uh, or is it the Spirit again who is from the beginning? And uh, again, the answer is yes. You know, maybe John had a specific person in mind, but it doesn't change the point. Whichever person of the Godhead he had in mind. And I think it's significant that John saves this instruction, this piece of assurance for those who are mature. Those who have lived life. Because what have they lived long enough to experience? Trials. They've experienced difficulties. They have been through, we might say, the the wringer of life. And what was the purpose of all of that? What, hopefully, has it taught them? That he who is before all things, he is greater than the world. He is greater than their circumstances. That he is in control of all things, doing all things well. And most of all, that he who is from the beginning, he is faithful. He's faithful always, through all circumstances, through all of life. He is faithful. And this is a, a reminder to us that the one that we know, he is not like our neighbor. He is not like a, our coworker. He's not like politicians or movie stars. You know, even the best of them, whoever that may be, the best of them, they're fallible. They're, they're, they're finite. They can only see and do so much, particularly when we take their, their sin into account. But our God. Our Father, He is the Eternal One, the the Sovereign One, the One whose mercy and grace never ceases, whose steadfast love is everlasting. It never fails. Our trust, friends, is in the Maker of Heaven and Earth. It's who we are. It's who we trust in. Again, what comfort that is in a world full of sorrows, in a world full of disappointments and uncertainties, this is who you are this is who you know the father who is from the beginning so children they're forgiven they're adopted fathers know the one who is from the beginning and then finally he addresses young men here and he says the most to them and it's interesting that he does that maybe maybe he does that because this is a, a rather poetic section and he's just sort of using a, a literary device to, to wrap up all that he's trying to say Uh, But I tend to think that that John says more to this particular group uh, because in addressing young men, he is addressing, as one commentator says, the the ones most energetically engaged in the business of Christian living and who are expected to be the church's first line of defense in the case of attack. And that certainly seems to be supported by what he says to them, right? Right? First, let's consider the fact that he declares that they are strong. He confirms their strength. Now somebody said to me one time, this person is here, but they shall remain nameless as well, that I am, me, Stephen, that I am deceptively strong. I want to be honest with y'all. I wanted to take that as a compliment, but I wasn't 100% sure how to take that. I think what they meant was that though I don't look strong, which kind of hurts, that in fact, I was, despite all of that, sort of stout. Now, I think that's probably true for these Christians here. Nothing would suggest, at least outwardly, that they are strong. Nothing, at least outwardly, would suggest That they are what John says here, certainly by worldly standards, maybe even by their own standards. And yet John says that their strength is enough to have overcome the evil one. The question is, where does that kind of strength come from? Is that something that they just have in them? Is that something that, that they're just maybe more spiritually muscular than everybody else? How is it that they have that kind of strength? Well, again, verse 14. He says, "You're strong, and it's because the Word of God abides in you." Some of you may have been here with us Wednesday night. We've been going through the, the Sinclair Ferguson video, and he made much in our this week's study uh, about the power of the word. And he asked he asked, do we believe that it is, in and of itself, powerful, that the word transforms? That the word is sufficient for us. That it's not just a book like every other book, but that it is the word of God. And because it is the word of God, his word spoken, his word spoken, which created the heavens and the earth, his word spoken, which did mighty and powerful things. That's what we have here. Do we believe that this word is enough to transform our lives? We don't have to go do crazy things out in the world. We don't have to have big programs. We don't have to have uh, be the most appealing. All we have to have is this book. It's the book that transforms. It's not me. It's not you. It's not the church. It is the Word and the, the Holy Spirit working through the Word that transforms our lives. Do we believe that? Do we trust it enough to go to the Word and to fall before it? And see what the Lord is saying to us. I would remind you that Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. He overcame the evil one, not with his power over creation, though we see later that he can calm the storms with his voice. He can raise the dead. No, he overcame the evil one with the word of God. He spoke it to him over and over and over again. Do you believe right now in the transformative power of the word? It's through it that these Christians have overcome. They've overcome in the future. Recognize too that they have overcome right now. He says you have overcome the world. There's victory. Victory now over sin. Victory now over Satan. Because you rest in the one who has achieved that victory. That's why... I chose this morning that resurrection hymn, one that we normally sing at Easter. That's why I wanted to open with it because it's a reminder that the one who overcame death, who was alive again, he won the victory. And because now we are in him, residing, resting in him, we as his people are also victorious. That's why John can speak like he does so often in this book with warnings and with trials and with tests he knows where the power lies he knows who has overcome he knows that it is Christ that is in God's people and because they are in him they cannot be moved friends one last time take heart in this incredible blessed assurance in a world where the enemy seems to have the upper hand both outwardly and often inwardly in our hearts the truth is The victory is won, nothing, not even the gates of hell will prevail against Christ and his church and against his people. The victory is won because Jesus won it. Well, we began this by saying that if you are here today discouraged, if you're here today uncertain, if you're here today and Satan is knocking at your door and telling you that you're not enough or trying to sow those seeds of fear or of doubt or of discouragement, whatever it may be, friends, I want you to hear these words that are before you. No matter what the world may say, no matter what Satan may say, no matter what you may be saying to yourself right now, if you are in Christ, here's what's true. objectively, unrevocably true you are forgiven you are adopted you are a child of God you are trusting in the one who is from the beginning you are strong strong in the word and you through that word resting in Christ the victorious conquering king you have overcome the evil one this is blessed assurance jesus uh, john he gives it to us here next time he's going to go back to the test he's going to go back to the warnings those things that make us a little bit uneasy but for now this is the foundation that we stand on we know the father we are resting in the son the holy spirit is alive in us and so we fight the good fight we press on towards the goal trusting in our triune god as we pray together father god we thank you for your word We thank you for the truth of it, that it does transform us, and we thank you for the blessed assurance that you give to your people through your word. Father, we all are struggling with sin this morning. We are all struggling with discouragement, with the the reality of the world that we see around us. We need you by the power of your spirit, through the power of your word, to give us assurance, to encourage us, to help us to be able to go out into the world and declare your glory, and declare your goodness, because it is objectively true. Lord, remind us today who we are. Lord, this is true for all of those who are resting in Jesus. And so I pray that for your people today. Lord, I also pray that if there are those here who are not resting in Christ today, Lord, don't give them that assurance. Remind them that it is only in Him that this assurance comes not what we do. It's not something that we can produce in ourselves, but it's as we stand on the sure foundation of Christ that this assurance is ours. So help us all to look to him, to trust in him, and we ask it in his name. Amen.